The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, junction, how's that function? I got three favorite cards that get most of my job done. Good evening. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Friday, August 11th, 2023. Did you know there are shooters on the range that don't know that song? Like, good shooters. That we all thought were, you know, normal people. Wow. Anyway, by now everybody's back from Camp Perry, I hope, and Lord have mercy, what another experience in the books. And I'm sorry about the wait since the last episode. After requesting two weeks off from work, I've more than had to make up for it over the last few weeks, and it's been eating at my time to get stuff together and even get back to the range. Well, boo-hoo, but it's time to be an adult. Throughout the downtimes between podcast episodes, I'll actually send myself an email about thoughts that come up in my little brain so I have something to talk about on the next episode. Between the cup matches at Camp Perry and board week, I sent myself three pages of text. So I'm going to do my best to keep everything organized because it was an EF5 tornado of a trip to Perry and I feel like I woke up under a dead cow in a wet field full of horse poop. By the way, we had a great time in the Perry house messing around with that chat GPT. If you aren't familiar with AI or artificial intelligence, you should be. And if you are familiar with it, then it should scare the crap out of you. We were having fun asking it to make high-power poetry in the form of limericks and haikus and whatnot, and it's it's really funny. And it does everything in real time. Uh, Actually, I can do it right now. Let me pull up the website. Chat.openai.com dot com on my phone let's see uh all right how about this create a limerick why sierra bullets are superior at 200 yards wow that was fast here it is in the range at 200 yards clear sierra bullets rain without peer their flight so precise hits the mark with advice making them champions it's clear that's pretty good let's do another one just for fun right a one-verse rap lyric why the M1 Garand is the most exciting rifle to shoot. Wow, that was fast, too. (laughs) The M1 Garand, a rifle with might, in its iconic ping brings sheer delight. Its history grand, a timeless charm, the thrill of its shot like an electric alarm. Okay, we're going to put that toy away from now, and uh, it's maybe seen a little too much. Moving on. On tap for today is some thoughts from the last two weeks in a Perry Ponderance, a wide-spectrum results rundown, a technique talk about a tidbit of wind reading, a quick word from our sponsors over at Rappy Products, and an equipment engagement about something I picked up from Camp Perry. In between random firings of neurons giving us random thoughts and ideas between now and the end of the episode. So buckle up, boys and girls. We're taking this truck straight into the mud. Well, Camp Perry 2023 is in the books. I was lucky enough to sneak away from work to attend the 2400-point CMP Cup match as well as the President's 100, the National Trophy Individual, 
the Hearst doubles and the national trophy team match. Before I left, I wanted to keep my expectations in check, realizing that last year was somewhat of an anomaly. Most shooters will shoot a little better than they expect to at some point, and last year at Camp Perry, I shot about five to seven points above my seasonal average prior to the national matches. I was definitely happy about that, but I also realized that expecting to come out of the 23 nationals with the same results would likely set me up for some, well, pretty bad disappointment. After comparing my pre-Perry averages from 22 and 23, I actually found that they were right about the same score. Roughly a 491 in a 500-point match and a 787 in an 800-point match. I also took a look at my scores from each match last year during board week and made it a goal just to improve on these scores a little bit. Some of them were, in fact, improved this year, and uh, some of them definitely were not. We had five bad days and two good days of shooting. So let's focus on some of the high points of Camp Perry in no particular order. We had nine competitors from my state make the president's top 100. I was able to bounce around the 5% mark to 10% mark finishing list in both the NTI and the president's 100 and I was able to shoot amongst some legends of the sport for the CMP Cup match. And if you're also at the Cup match, you know how much free time we had on the ready line for those stupid line changes, electronic target issues, and electronic target issues. Anyway, let's break them down a bit. First off, I had the pleasure of shooting with what I learned along the way were two legends of high power, Jack Jones and Jim O'Connell. Prior to day one of the CMP Cup, I had not met either one of them or even honestly knew that he existed. Hopefully that shows my knowledge level of the history of the sport. Jim O'Connell was one of those guys that just exuded experience in the sport. He was squatted next to a gaggle of blue-shirted California juniors that could only be tamed by a professional cat rancher. I heard some serious nuggets of wisdom come out of his mouth that honestly made me think twice a few times. He was a guy that could spit out one sentence or instruction and it had so much more meaning and knowledge in it that you gained a higher viewpoint of the bigger picture. I loved listening to him coach those little smurfs. Jack Jones, on the other hand, was in my mind how the Japanese referred to the U.S. after Pearl Harbor, a sleeping giant. He was a highly experienced, friendly, calm fellow who turned into an angry, bolt-ripping demon behind an old MAK tube rifle chambered in Get this, 284. Watching this man work that bolt handle made me wonder if maybe that bolt owed him some money somewhere in the past. He didn't just do a quick finger flip that you see a lot of Elysio and tub rifle shooters use. He full gripped it and ripped it in both directions. It wouldn't surprise me if he broke a few bolt knobs or handles in the past. Actually, his bolt knob was just electrical tape insulation molded around the end of the bolt handle. He said it was sticky, but it did the trick. I was just floored when I watched him shoot something like an 8x clean in sitting with time to spare. If you ever want to feel less of a man or a woman, watch this man shoot rapid sitting. It's mesmerizing. I also watched him finish off a decent x clean target during a slow fire at 600 yards in about 6 minutes flat. He didn't pull the gun once out of his shoulder or twist the knobs at all. He just held off and fired away. It was hypnotic. Those two guys gave me hope for shooting well when I get older, much older. The next high point from Perry was watching nine of our home state shooters make the president's top 100. This was a first time for me in the top 100, and I couldn't be more ecstatic about checking that life goal box. But nine from one state? That was awesome. 
To put that into perspective, the land of Lincoln had the second most shooters make the P-100, second only to Georgia, of which a good number of those shooters were from the U.S. AMU. So congratulations to Liam, Jim, Conrad, Pat, Jim number two, Ken, Mark, and his son hanging onto it by one place, Cole. Gotta love the father-son President 100 finish there. And as my first shooter shout-out on the podcast, Cole also won the Springfield and Garand matches for the junior category on his first-ever vintage matches at Camp Perry. That's how it's done. Congratulations, Cole. Great shooting. Way to make your dad and your entire home state proud. The other great thing that I saw at Perry was White Oak's Distinguished Rifleman's Scope Giveaway. If you weren't there, you had to score a clean target during trophy week to be eligible to enter. However many X's you shoot in that clean string is how many entries you get. I love giveaways, but I really liked a good performance-based giveaway. Thankfully, I didn't clean a single string, so I get to buy the next one the old-fashioned way. I wish more companies would do this. I wasn't at Perry during the good old days, as it's often called, so maybe this sort of promotion or giveaway stuff was more prominent, but this reminds me of my silhouette days. There wasn't a day at the Nationals or even some of the Regionals where something wasn't given away to the other competitors. Whether it was one of the numerous door prizes being called out by Centerline, 500 or more bullets being donated for special category winners like High Junior or High Lady, or one that I'm proud of was a free McMillan stock that was built to my grandfather's specs after a really good weekend at an Arizona regional match in Phoenix. From what I understand, that used to maybe be a little bit more prominent, but why can't that come back? Why don't we see more companies donate prizes at the Nationals at Camp Perry? From what I understand, that used to be a thing, but now it's not. Well, where did it all go? Well, wherever it went, it's certainly missed by this competitor. And a big thanks to White Oak for doing their point to fill that void at the full Camp Perry experience. You want to attract more shooters? This will certainly help. Moving on. The rest of the week, which included the NTI, the Hearst Doubles, and the six-man team match, left me feeling like I've hit a little bit of a massive sophomore slump. I haven't been shooting to the top of my potential for the last three or four months, and honestly, it's been wearing down on me just a little bit. My brain is doing some weird things where it's telling my trigger finger to send the round downrange at the wrong time during rapids and even some offhands. In offhand, I noticed it when I'm starting to do those dreaded yank snatchers or whatever you want to call it that you hear people talking about. It's a good hold, or at least it's starting to, and I'm waiting for the aim point to work its way into the 10 ring. Instead of letting it happen naturally, I'm jerking my hold toward the center and snatching the trigger and hope it works out. Ah, uh, that's not good. I had a college buddy tell me about this one time that he had to fart in high school and didn't want everybody to hear it. So he thought he'd time it by dropping his textbook on the floor and letting the fart fly at the same time and maybe nobody would notice. Didn't work out. He dropped the textbook and made a loud slam. Everyone looked at him and then he farted. Center stage. Basically the same thing in my offhand with without the teenage embarrassment. Another issue that's been plaguing me in rapids is the change between my hold during prep time and ciders and the actual string. Now, I'm not trying to do some radio self-therapy here, but I think it's interesting to talk about. During prep and ciders, my three-quarter MOA dot just kind of sits on top of the X-ring. It's awesome. I could darn near pull the trigger at any given time during those strings, and it would just be a nice tight X. But load the magazine, and the heartbeat shows up. Now I'm kind of used to this, I've shot high X cleans with this, being able to shoot at the bottom of the heartbeat, 
the heartbeat bounce goes from a good centered X to maybe a 10 o'clock wide 10. Shoot at the bottom of the bounce and boom goes the dynamite. Two things have changed recently and I need to diagnose where the discrepancy exists. First, my heartbeat bounce has changed. Where it used to be 10 o'clock to center is now 3 o'clock wide 9 to a center X. That's unusual. John Holliger from White Oak was nearby and I mentioned it to him. And I think we agree that it's probably a cardiac medical issue and maybe not a position problem. But as funny as that was, the problem still exists. The other problem I'm having is the one where my brain is telling my finger to squeeze when it's not centered. Nine at one o'clock? Excellent, send it. Oh look, a nine at one o'clock, just where I told it to go. Good shot. What the heck, is that lizard brain? Wow. The other day I had a four hour drive to get to work and I spoke to my grandfather about this little slump that I'm in. If you maybe haven't listened to a few episodes towards the beginning, this man is densely packed with years of knowledge and experience from his days shooting high power in the 60s and 70s with the Air Force team. I wanted to see if he had any suggestions about how to get out of this slump. I explained what was happening, how it's starting to frustrate me worse than I've ever felt before, and see if he's gone through it and if he had any tips or life stories. While him and I had a great conversation over about an hour or two, the one thing that stuck among all his tips was that he mentioned it might be a lack of focus. As in, if I'm not laser focused on shooting good shots, I shouldn't expect them. Now, that sounds really basic, like, how do we get to this point in the season and not be focused? But after I really thought about it for the remainder of the car ride, I realized that his assessment may be a really good answer and something I need to, well, focus on. Here's why I support his theory. A few episodes ago, I shot really poorly in an 80-rounder and a leg match. In the episode following that match, I had spoken about that match as feeling like I really wasn't in the zone. I'm now realizing that I might have a focus issue. Maybe my brain is just too much on autopilot. It's hard to explain, but let me try. Imagine sitting in the back of your car where someone's driving your car on your route to work. You know what they should be doing. You know the route. You can see the traffic and all the pedestrians and all the potholes that you don't want to hit. And you have awareness of everything going on. But it's not the same thing as being in the driver's seat of the car and driving it and being focused and driving with all the full situational awareness. That's about how it feels for me. Or in other terms, like reading a book when you're really exhausted. You're reading the words, but you're just rolling blank tape in your brain. Like I'm at the range. I know every single step. I'm applying a correlative level of knowledge and experience to what I'm doing, but I'm just letting it ride in autopilot when I'm behind the rifle and not focusing on breaking good shots. It'll take a good amount of time to reflect upon that and hopefully get it back to normal, but it's probably a good life lesson in the long run speed of things. Another good piece of advice that I heard John Holliger say was, work on your process, technique, and shooting the right way and then the scores will come. I think that's great advice and I think I need to pay a little more attention to that. That is the main thing, right? My buddy Jim told me, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if I'm not focusing on everything and making something else the main thing, then the main thing certainly is not the main thing. That's more sage advice from a fellow teammate. On the bright side, I'm glad we're getting all these bad habits and bad shots out of the way at Camp Perry so that I'm ready for my local monthly club match. Yeah. I also had the honor of being the new shooter 
well, by CMP's definition of a new shooter, with the home state team. Last year, we were doing really well, and I had a fairly decent day in 2022. This year didn't quite go that way, but I still learned a ton from those guys. This was another day where I wasn't anxious or nervous, but, you know, after the previous few days, I didn't quite have that confidence that I had last year. I had a good score in offhand, shooting next to Liam, the bearded prince of Dublin, which was always fun and set a pretty good tone in my brain and sort of changed my outlook on the week as a whole. Then we got to Rapid Sit. It was much of the same story from the week before. Bobbles, trigger control, and heartbeat problems. My poor coach. I was secretly hoping John had loaded up the phrase, good right there, ready to go after the first shot. But I was all over the place. I'm sure I gave him a mental and verbal workout trying to call my shots all over the place. After shot 10, I remember looking backwards at him with that stupid poop-eating Shrek smile that just radiates the phrase, Did I do good? Because I don't think that was good. Slow prone was another rough time. Normally I'm feeling confident in holding a good center X or a tight 10 at 600. I had two shots that were just abominations. It's not a good feeling when you pull the trigger and it wasn't quite where the coach told you to and you're waiting for his response when the target comes up. It's like when dad has a really bad day at work and just got home a little late after dinner time. You're just kind of waiting to see what happens with him next. Thankfully, John Holliger is one of the most patient coaches I've worked with. Even when he should have been throwing the data book at the back of my head for calling a wide downwind nine, he'll just give a polite dose of encouragement and get back to the game with another good wind call for the next shot. Maybe I need a coach that throws stuff at me and screams at me to improve. Anybody ever see the movie Whiplash? Awesome movie. Go rent it. Whiplash. I could probably benefit from a coach like that for a few matches. But getting a little off topic here, after two seasons working with John Holliger, I'm almost more intrigued with the coaching side of the team match over the shooting part. Not totally, but maybe more of a curiosity thing. I think watching the wind calls, getting the rifles married up, making quick assessments of shots during rapid fire, and keeping track of everything else situationally demands a lot of attention and experience. Someday, I think it'd be fun just to sit down with a coach for a two- or four-man team match just to get the experience. Or maybe if I break my leg like Nancy Kerrigan or bust a rifle or something, shadow a coach and learn what's going on in their brain throughout the match. Another thing I wanted to bring up, and I know I'm getting a little long-winded with this section here, is that we had a teammate with a mechanical issue in one of the rapid strings preventing a round from going off. Despite saving a round, he kept an incredibly positive attitude for the rest of the day. He continued to encourage others on the team, he kept a clear mind, and he shot well for the remainder of the match. I learned a lot just witnessing that transformation, and I probably, yeah, I probably could have used that lesson before the beginning of the cup matches because Lord knows I got visibly frustrated sometimes. It's always great shooting with people like that, the people that teach you more about yourself than about them. So to round out the finishes at Camp Perry, top 50 in the P100, 80th or so in the NTI, top 10% of the Hearst doubles, and third overall in the six-man team match. Not the greatest week when compared to last year, but like my alleged lizard brain doing some weird things, I'm not sure what I expected after I pulled the trigger in the nine ring. Or the seven ring. 
All right, welcome back to a technique talk about a task in which I'm starting to gain a little more confidence. I want to chat about reading the wind and making an informed wind call. This topic is extremely in-depth. I could go on for hours about it, but honestly, my overall experience with reading the wind is just, it's limited to about the last three years, and more reasonably, about the last year and a half or so when you put it into principle. So let's make this easy. Let's open up ChatGPT. In 50 words or less, tell me about how to determine crosswind value for bullet deflection. And let the dog hunt. There it is. That was quick. To determine crosswind value for bullet deflection, use the rule of thumb. At 100 yards, a 10 mile an hour crosswind will typically move a bullet one inch off target. Adjust accordingly for longer distances and wind speed. Advanced shooters use ballistic calculators and wind meters for precise calculations. Yeah, thank you. All right, uh, AI is referring to us as advanced shooters if we're using ballistic calculators. Actually, that's somewhat impressive for a system that really doesn't have a specialty in shooting sports. That would be three inches at 300 yards, which I normally dial in about two and a half minutes or 10 clicks for you clicking folks. Well, anyway, let's get down to business. This technique talk is not an advanced course in wind reading. It will not qualify you to shoot a thousand yards in gusty winds with a 223 caliber round. It will not be all-inclusive either. I am here to discuss a few select topics that might be useful on the range if you struggle making an informed wind decision. I'm looking at you, 2021 JP. Let's break down a scenario. We have a new shooter at the 300-yard line. Let's call him Blob. Blob has a good idea of his elevation, but no idea what to dial in for wind. He can feel it somewhere from the left, and he can see that the flags are somewhat lifted off the pole at a 45-degree angle, and Blob says to himself, No clue. How about a minute left? So he guesses, he throws on four clicks of left, and he fires away. Blob gets all shots downrange, and he's expecting his group to be... Where? Centered? Left? Right? Until that target comes up, he has not a damned clue. If it's centered, he'll think to himself, Blob, that was a good wind call. Nice work. That strategy must work just fine. If it's left, he'll think to himself, next time, no wind. If it's to the right, he'll think, man, that's a lot of wind down there. Let's add on some more left next time. Blob just thinks to himself, I'll get it next time. Newsflash, Blob, you won't. We all know you can't employ the same strategy unless you're at the same range at the same firing point with the exact same wind. If that were the case, maybe, just maybe, you'd get it right. So let's break down old Blob's conundrum with a nice, even, steady state wind. What does Blob need to know to make an informed decision? In no particular order, he'll need to know the variables that are present on the range, such as the speed of the wind, that one makes sense. He'll also greatly benefit from knowing the direction of the wind with relation to the path of the bullet to the target. That's another game changer. What he might also benefit from is knowing the wind drift that each mile an hour of crosswind will push his bullet away from the aim point. He should already know that, and we'll get to that in a minute. And finally, it would help if Blob knew the direction of his windage knobs. That one sounds basic, but trust me, we've all been there. Let's look at the not-so-variable variable, and that's the drift of the bullet with relation to crosswind factor. Want to know a quick rule of thumb for each yard line? Here it is. 
If you're shooting 77s at 200 and 300, and you're shooting 80s or 80 and a halfs at 600, this should apply. For a direct one mile an hour crosswind, it's just under a quarter minute at 200, right at a quarter minute at 300, and a half minute at 600. Or if you're using a quarter minute click scope, a click at two, a click at three, and two clicks at six. To be more accurate, the quarter minute of movement at 200 is actually just under a click, but if you had to choose between adding a click and not adding a click, just add a click. It's worth more than an eighth, but it's worth less than a quarter, so you'll be more off by shooting straight away than if you just added the wind. If you happen to be shooting 77s at 600, then the rule still kind of applies. That one's just actually over a half, but it's still less than three quarters of a minute. Besides the old rule of thumb, which typically works for most rifles and loads, we can back this up by mathematical data. Of course, you probably know I've already done that one for this episode, so I'll just hit you with some details really quickly. When I plug a one mile an hour wind in the Sierra 77s, they blow 0.17 minutes for each mile an hour at 200. <clears throat> one click. 0.26 for each mile an hour at 300. One click. And the Burger 80 and a half moves 0.47 minutes per mile an hour. And that's two clicks. That's at my velocity out of my rifle. That was calculated using the applied ballistics app on a G7 model with the environmental data at Camp Perry for the day at the Hearst Doubles, which was about 80, 86, 85 degrees and standard pressure. So where am I going with all this techno babble? Well, first, these data points support the rule of thumb. I like that in a rule of thumb. Even if I drop the temps by a few degrees and make the air more dense, the data still stays within the ballpark. Of course, knowing what your bullet will do at a given atmospheric condition will help in even stronger winds for varying temperatures. I guarantee that my bullet at 85 degrees at Camp Perry at 10 miles an hour had lesser drift than the day at Camp Atterbury in March that was 45 degrees cooler with the same wind value. In fact, on the colder day, according to the ballistics app, it should have moved the bullet about two minutes further. So while the rule of thumb still applies to most days in the summertime, if you get a generous swing in temperature, it may, actually it will, create a little havoc if you're not fully prepared for it. The point I'm trying to make here is know your bullet's drift. A standard summertime temperature drift of 15 to 20 degrees won't cause too much chaos, but if you swing on the extremes, you might want to have some data to give you a good starting point, especially if you don't have ciders. Personally, I use the Applied Ballistics app on my phone, and there's plenty of other ballistic apps that give good data. It's one of those things that if you're a summertime shooter only with a service rifle, it'll almost never get used, to be honest, maybe more than once or twice, so don't go spend a ton of cash on it. However, if you're like me and you shoot a few different calibers at different velocities at random temperatures throughout the entire year, it's going to help to have an application like this at your fingertips just to give you an idea of what you're up against. Where this simple rule of thumb starts to fall apart is when the winds are really howling. Let's give our shooter a 30 mile an hour crosswind. Anyone from Spokane or Colorado here? The rule of thumb would give us... 30 clicks at 200 and 300 
and 60 clicks at 600. So seven and a half minutes at 200 and 300 and 15 minutes of windage at 600. Based on the 0.17, the 0.26 and the 0.47 drift according to the calculator, we end up actually needing 21 clicks at 200, 31 clicks at 300 and 56 clicks at 600. So the rule of thumb gives us an error of about two minutes at 200, only a quarter minute at 300, and a full minute at 600. That's enough to lose a point or two at 200 and 600 yards. So the lesson is, the more wind and temperature extremes are present, the more error using the rule of thumb. Know your drift, boys and girls. Moving on. Let's talk about the velocity of the wind. Often a commonly overestimated factor in the wind call, the wind velocity is an important factor to gather next because it's a huge part of the equation to determine before you twist those knobs on the right side of the scope. When I was younger, my grandfather used to look outside at dinner time and randomly give me a wind call and velocity. At the time, I never understood this. We'd be eating a wonderful ribeye that he grilled up and he'd be looking outside and say, probably three minutes. I'd look out at the trees and impressionably just respond with like, hmm. When we used to shoot silhouette together, he was one of the master wind callers on the line. Considering he was allowed to coach me in the sport, I never really questioned it. Mostly because I never knew what he was looking for. Maybe since we were always teamed up, he just never gave it much thought to cover the topic with me. But he was really talented in calling the speed and direction of the wind, which gave great results. He would always say something to the effect of probably 8 to 10, or probably 2 to 3, or sometimes 20 to 25. Whatever the wind was, he was thinking about it, even when we were off the range doing yard work or whatever. He was, and still is, extremely sharp on it. It took years of practice, but it's kind of a learned art. Which brings me to my next point. You need to start challenging yourself to be more accurate with wind speed calls. I used to really suck at this. I still do, but I, I used to really also suck at this. I remember after I got my first wind meter from my friend Brad that I'd call the wind as something like 18 miles an hour. Wind meter up, 10. 10? There's no way. Then the experienced guy next to me would sort of chuckle. How long have I been exaggerating the velocity to everybody? Was I really not shooting in a 45 mile an hour wind the other day? Anyway, it took a few seasons, including this one, to start to get a little more real about the wind judgment based on the information I had in front of me. How does this work? Easy. Well, not really. Things that can really help you determine the wind speed include, and in no particular order, again, the wind you feel on your face, the wind flags, mirage movement, tree movement, grass movement, dust blowing off the roads, smokestacks, and of course, your local weatherman. My recommendation to get better at this art form would be to spend a day in a field or the range or whatever you have that has winds prevalent. Maybe you're verifying or scorekeeping or sitting around picking blades of grass from the ground during an off relay. Take a look around. Take a guess what the wind is where you're standing based on every piece of information available and then raise up that wind meter and find the speed of the wind. Then recalibrate yourself. Try again, and then wait a few moments, and then do it again. This practice takes time, but it's one of my favorite methods at improving wind speed calls. Now, wind speed is only 
half of the equation. The other half involves knowing the direction of the wind. And trust me on this, you can be surgical with your wind speed call, but missing a directional change or misjudging the direction of the wind will decimate your scores. Again, I am a pro at that. And just to be clear, I'm a pro at getting decimated by directions. So I place a lot of emphasis on which way the wind is coming from. So for what we do in the sport, I think it's good to look at the wind direction as if we had laid it out on a clock flat on the earth. 12 o'clock will be straight away at the target. 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock will be pointed directly at your buddy on the right or left. You get the picture. 6 o'clock's behind you. The reason I look at this is because each major point on the clock represents something really important. It's a percentage value. And this is the other major part of the equation. Let's look at the wind switches from 3 o'clock to 12 o'clock incrementally and in fairly basic mathematical terms. When the wind is coming across the firing line from the 3 o'clock position, it's considered full value or 100%, meaning the speed of the wind is entirely crosswind directly affecting your bullet travel. So at 300 yards, that one click per mile per hour should hold pretty well. However, when the wind starts to angle forward, it does some kind of weird things. First, it breaks into two different vectors, crosswind and in this case, headwind. When the wind reaches the 2 o'clock position, the value of the crosswind has diminished to approximately 87% of its original 3 o'clock value. So that means that 87% of the wind is considered crosswind, moving your bullet laterally. Seems like it should be in thirds for each hour on the clock, but surprisingly it's not. The other 14% that's missing is just headwind and that's not really important to us now. I like to use 90% here because it's easier for my dumb brain to calculate 90% of a crosswind. So at two o'clock, approximately 90% of crosswind value. When the wind reaches one o'clock, the wind still has an amazing 50% crosswind value, 50% at one o'clock. So a 10 mile per hour wind still retains five miles per hour of crosswind when it's from one o'clock. That's pretty incredible. I hear a lot of people look at the wind and just say, yeah, I'm going to shoot with a no wind zero, knowing fully that it's coming from the left or the right. Really? It's worth at least something. So why ignore it? Let this be my hill to die on here. If there's wind from the left or the right, it's worth a click. If you're hearing this and you're the non-clicker, do yourself a favor and click. Humor me for your own good. If you're looking to improve your directional calls, which I really suggest you do, do it in a similar manner as your wind speed improvement. Check all the indications, make a clock-faced guess, and then either use a device to tell you the direction, like a personal wind flag or a ribbon, or maybe toss up some grass and see if you made the right call. I know it sounds basic, but it's important and it helps. Making that call on the range when you're in position to fire is admittedly a little more challenging. You can always throw some grass in the air, but it's only really representing the wind that's circling above you. And if the wind's in your face, you won't see it disappear behind you. That brings us to the flags and the mirage. Flags are pretty awesome if they're available. At Camp Perry, they make flags fairly helpful for us. As you look down the line of flags from the 600 yard line and even the flags behind you, they may indicate to a casual observer maybe a wind from the right. 
but look a little closer. Is there one flag that's pointing right at you or away from you? Or at least one that's close to your direction? That's the money flag. Because it's indicating the direction the wind is coming from or toward. Most of the time, it's not always at 3 o'clock or 6 o'clock. If you can find that money flag and it's behind you and to the right, that should alert you right away. It is not a full crosswind value. Put that flagpole on a clock face and figure out which value of crosswind it represents. Are there no wind flags? Yeah, that's a scenario we face sometimes. But maybe you have Mirage present. Okay, that's helpful. Personally, I like to look downrange at the target at the Mirage and see first which direction, left or right, is it moving. Then I like to gauge the intensity at which it's moving. Now that takes a lot of practice. I'm still working on that one because I find it tough to look at the Mirage and assign a wind speed to it. Here's another tip that I learned from watching a video about wind reading with Emil Praslik on YouTube. Thanks to my friend Jerry sending me the link. If you can detect Mirage, but not necessarily pinpoint the exact direction the wind is coming from, move your spotting scope around toward where you think the wind is coming from while taking glances at the Mirage a few times on the way toward that direction. Eventually, you'll have the scope pointing at an object or an area that shows the mirage as a pure boil or just going straight up. That direction, in simplistic terms and maybe as an aggregate, is where the wind is coming from. If you keep going past that point, you'll notice the mirage start going in the opposite direction compared to the mirage at your target. So mark that place location in your head as the predominant wind direction at that time and now you can make a more informed decision on your wind multiplier. Please keep in mind that there's not always Mirage present. And if there is, sometimes the wind may be actually so strong that you can't pick up on velocity changes because the Mirage is running so quickly. I think normally that happens around 10 or 12 miles an hour. So we can't always rely on the Mirage for a good wind call or for pickup and let off changes, but it's definitely useful. And speaking of wind direction, Download the app called Windy, W-I-N-D-Y. It'll give you an idea on the predominant winds in your area and the wind shifts throughout the day. I was using this at Camp Perry just to predict where the wind would be shifting toward over a long period of time. It's great to know this information ahead of time that maybe the wind would be switching from, say, 6 o'clock in the late morning to maybe 4 o'clock by noon. Maybe those subtle wind direction shifts won't catch you off guard as much as you would if you didn't have that information. Getting back on topic, Blob now has three pieces of information he needs to make a good wind call. The direction of the wind, the speed of the wind, and the amount of movement that crosswind value will move his bullet. Let's take a few examples here. At 300 yards, Bob estimates a 6 mile an hour crosswind at 3 o'clock. Well, that one's easy. 6 miles an hour times 100%, 6 miles an hour. One click per mile an hour is 6 clicks of right windage. Okay, how about 11 o'clock wind at 12 miles an hour? Okay, so 11 o'clock is a left wind at 50% value. Because remember, on a clock face, 11 o'clock... 1 o'clock, 
7 o'clock and 5 o'clock are half value directions. So 50% times the 12 miles an hour of wind gives you 6 miles an hour of crosswind. Again, 6 clicks. And last but not least, how about the 600 yard line? With a 4 o'clock wind at 28 miles an hour. Well, we know the 4 o'clock, the 2 o'clock, the 8 o'clock, and the 10 o'clock are my 87% zones. And 87% times 28 miles per hour is roughly 24 miles per hour, according to my calculator. Two clicks per mile per hour is 48 clicks, or 12 minutes of wind. It sounds daunting, but hey, math is math. Now Blob is fully educated on the art of wind reading and developing a perfect wind call every single time. False. Blob is not. Remember, this is the most basic, basic, basic level of wind reading. The kindergarten of a future PhD candidate. There is so much more that there is to learn that I didn't discuss here that are learned over many years of studying, of trial and error, and just giving it the old college try. I'm sure we've all faced these, but here's a few examples. Our favorite one, what if the flags are pointing in different directions? What do I do if the wind is shifting constantly between 12 o'clock and 1.30? What's more important, firing line wind or downrange wind? What's worse, a speed change or a directional change? Hint on that one, it's probably the directional change. There's so many questions that just have to be learned over time. I've mastered an entire, yeah, zero of them. However, I look forward to the times that I get to play around with the wind and understand it more and use the strategies that I've seen or heard being used over the firing line, and maybe we'll get into some of that later. I want to put a special note in here for some of the resources I've used to help me learn about wind and write this really long segment. Of course, my grandfather Jerry for all his years of coaching, all my high-power mentors and coaches throughout the last few years, Jerry, who sends me useful links of Emil Praslik talking about wind shooting, and two books that have been extremely helpful. The Wind Book for Rifle Shooters by Laura Miller and Keith Cunningham, and Prone and Long Range Rifle Shooting by Nancy Topkins. And now, just a brief word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by another great invention by Rappy Products. Are you not happy with your electronic targets? Were you promised a fun and quick match with 100% accuracy on bullet positions? Are you sick and tired of system reboots, dead batteries, overheated tablets, and shot up cables that prevent the sensor from responding? Maybe you get a little bored, frustrated, and annoyed while moving to the 300 yard line and waiting 97 minutes for electronics to be sorted out. Well, introducing Paper Targets by Rappy Products. With pre-printed scoring rings on each target, you can now tell where your bullet goes every single time. Save yourself the headaches trying to re-zero your rifle between each firing point. Earn valuable leg points by not relying on a Pentium 1 processor to track all 10 of your rapid-fire shots. With Paper Targets, now know where your bullets go every single shot, literally making every single shot count. Now you can purchase 500 targets and receive a free set of scoring discs and the all-new Rappy Holy Plugger for when you're not quite sure if you've crossed the line or not. 
Scrappy products available at your local outdoor sporting goods store. Not available in all 50 states. Paper targets do not provide shot velocity or standard deviations, and as such are not suitable for F-Class. Some assembly required. I want to do a quick equipment engagement before I let you go because I know it's been a long episode. Today's equipment engagement is for the awesome folks at HickTech and their Total Eclipse Spotting Scope Stand. I came across their stand on the High Power Forum a while ago, but I wasn't looking for a new one at the time, so I didn't give it much thought. A wonderful shooter in Milan had graciously offered to let me use his stand until I found one, and I thought it was just time that I big boyed up and found my own. Numerous people had spoken about how great Raven products were, but they were just hard to find now. So I had read that HickTech, that's H-I-C-T-E-C, which stands for High Power Improvement Concepts, was, and I quote other people here, the Raven guy. Now, not knowing any history to this, I reached out to Wade at HickTech and I just asked him if he would be at Camp Perry so I could see one of his stands. He was nice enough to agree to set an Eclipse stand aside for me to check out. The first or second day that he had his shop opened up on Vendor's Row, I hopped in to take a look and that's when I met his wife, Merrily. She knew exactly who I was and helped me work through the different functions of the stand. As a really simple description, it's a three-legged stand with a one-inch pole at 60 inches tall, a scope head, and an outrigger, which is a five or six-inch horizontal extension. And at the end of the outrigger is a shorter pole that you can have your scope set up and prone while keeping it further away from the stand legs. Some cool features that I really liked about this is that the 60-inch pole untwists into two segments. The other segment is held in place by a small metal collar that's shaped like the number 8. Each 1-inch pole slides into each hole of the number 8. That collar height can be adjusted, and merely mention that ideally, you should put this at the height that stops the scope head where you need it for rapid sitting. Okay, that's pretty awesome. Lord knows, I'm getting sick of putting Sharpie all over my scope stands and guessing where to put the scope height. Another cool feature is that the outrigger pole also has a little adjustable collar to stop your scope head where you need it for prone. Excellent. I found that to be really helpful. Something that I didn't realize the value of was the legs folding around and upward towards the top. They do not hit each other as they rotate. So there's none of that scope stand leg Tetris that I'm used to playing with my old Creedmoor stand. That's a really well thought out design and I really dig it. They also offer a wide variety of other products including range carts, F-Class style stands, one and a quarter inch scope heads and outriggers, and they've really got all their bases covered here. Their website is HICTEC.com and they're very responsive to emails. Now normally I close it out here, but I want to throw in another nugget or two. I had the pleasure of actually shooting next to Wade in the President's 100 this year. He's a really down-to-earth guy and is super helpful. Wade and I spoke about the stand, and I had mentioned that I'm going to have to find a way to get the scope a little higher on the stand because my prone position is a little higher than the outrigger would let me have my scope set to. Without hesitation, Wade said, send me the dimensions and I will get you set up with a new one. Just trade in the old one via mail when you get home, and boom, it's done. It is already at my door and it is a gem. He also shared his story with me about how he got started with the HickTech business, and it was really heartwarming. Calling him just the Raven guy 
is just way too simple because the friendship between him and Ray goes way deeper than the general shooting public probably knows. Ray trusted him with 100% of everything on the product line, and they were great friends and shop buddies until Ray suddenly passed. As their website says, Ray give them the full blessing to continue the product line and keep it going. I hear a lot of high power stuff being not the same as it used to be, but you can rest assured that Hicktech is putting the same care and quality and craftsmanship into their products just as they were when they were Ray Vin. Go visit the website, shoot them an email, whatever. Just check them out next time you're looking into upgrading some of your high power gear. I promise it's going to be worth every penny. Okay, take a breath. That was probably the longest episode we've gone through together. So thank you for sticking with me. Although I'm not quite shooting as much as I was before Perry right now, there is still some fun stuff coming up on the horizon as we enter the silly season. That's what I'm calling post-Perry from now on. I've got my Elysio UMRS set up with a new Proof Research 223 barrel. I have test loads ready in the box for a day at the range and a slightly bigger scope set up on it than I'm used to. I'm excited to put that thing through its paces, and as Match Rifle did last year, get humbled again. If you want to weigh in on anything or give somebody a shout out or just say hi or talk about my wind calls, great, give me a buzz. Send me an email at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. In the meantime, remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>